Good morning. All right. Excellent. You guys are awake now. Thank you all for joining us here at LifeSpring today. It's good to see you all here. Thank you for showing up on this beautiful Sunday morning. What an amazing place we live in, Alaska. If you guys did not, is there anyone that did not grab a notes page or get a notes page on their way in today? I have a few left over. I think I gave two to your wife. Or maybe she's handing them out to someone else. <laughs> okay, you got one now? All right, here you go. There's one. Anyone else? Anyone else? All right, I'll give you guys a couple. There you go. All right. I gave you these notes pages because there's a lot that we're going to go through today. A lot of scripture, a lot of notes that I want you to be ready to take um, because you're not going to be able to process everything that we have today in this time. It's impossible. Uh, and I don't want to be unrealistic and expect you to do so. So I want to, to give you notes so that you can take some notes, take some ideas down, and then throughout the week process what God is going to speak to you today. So that's what I'm excited about, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to delivering what God has for us today. If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Colossians 2, 8 through 15. That's our passage today. We're continuing on in our series of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we're going to be in Colossians 2, 8 through 15 today. <clears throat> Paul says here, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Thank you, God, for your word. It's amazing that we even get to have your word in front of us. And we ask you that you would continually bless the reading of your word in public and in private. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, today, I know that's a long passage of scripture, and I cannot expect myself and much less all of us to sit here and go through every single bit of, uh, of meat that's in that passage of scripture. So we're only going to hit a few of it today, and I would challenge you and encourage you to take time and go through this passage throughout this week and ask God to reveal to you what he's saying to you through it, because there's way too much to cover in just a few minutes here. So today I have three topics that I'm going to hit on that kind of encompass the, the totality of this passage in the from a high-level view. We're going to talk about the lies, we're going to talk about the truth, and we're going to talk about the gospel. 
And on your notes page, I wrote down one key, one key takeaway point that if you, if you don't get anything else from today, I want you to remember this one thing. <clears throat> I want you to remember, I want to make sure I got the right one. Do not battle Satan in street clothes. Put on the armor of God and battle in the armor of God. All right? Do not battle Satan in street clothes. Battle him in the armor of God. <clears throat> so first off, the first part of the passage that we're going to address is the lies. It says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive with, by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. In this passage, Paul continues the offensive against the lies plaguing the church in Colossae and the surrounding regions. You see, there were several influences trying to, uh, trying to attack the truth in the church there. And uh, the truth that, especially that Epaphras had been teaching them. You see, Epaphras went and spoke to that church and delivered Paul's message. Paul had not even been there yet, and, but he had heard about the church and he loved that church because of what God was doing there. And so he wanted to speak into their lives some truth. The majority of the heresies involved the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because the region was populated with a significant Jewish immigrant community, there were those who were trying to bring some of the traditional Jewish culture and religious practices into what this new Christian church had been growing and developing. In addition to these rituals and traditions, there were also teachings of veneration of angels, with whom they believe that um, the control of the operations of this world rested. So they believe that these angels had powers over what was going on in this world, that God had vested those powers in them. And you see, this is kind of like what was happening in other places where they were trying to mix the Greek and Roman uh, philosophies, the Greek and Roman traditions and gods of polytheism into the Christian church. So Paul wanted to speak against that. You know, this is similar in many ways to what we see in the current Catholic church with the practice of patron saints. See, and when we think about this from a Christian perspective and from a Western perspective, we sometimes don't get the fullness and understand what that is. So we're going to take a little bit of a history lesson today as we go through this. So all of this is based in history. So if you were looking at ancient societies where kings ruled over every aspect of life, if you wanted to try to change something, what you had to do was you had to know someone who knew someone who knew someone who might be able to get in front of the king. And if your idea was impactful enough, if it was strong enough to influence the king, then you might be able to get something changed. Now, when the Roman, Holy Roman Empire took over and was ruling over much of Europe and, and uh, West Asia, that idea crept in as well, that if you had the ability to impact kings in this world through that same type of practice, then you could do the same thing with God. So with these saints who had significant impact in this world in various areas, when they died and went to heaven, the idea was that you could pray to these saints because they had a closer connection to God. 
And then you would, might be able to get someone on the inside to be able to make an impact because of the separation you had. You might not have as much of an impact, but because you prayed to Mary or to St. Paul or to St. Peter or someone else that had a significant impact, you might be able to get what you wanted done. <clears throat> so it's not so strange of an idea when you understand the, the political aspects and the social aspects that were going on. Now, I want us, as we keep that in mind, I want us to think and remember that these are all extra biblical things. These are nothing that was based in what the Bible was teaching. It was all something that they saw in their culture and then said, this is our culture and we're going to apply it now to our church. So as we start to look at our culture and think about the things that may be impacting us in our views of God, we're going to take a little, uh, we're going to do a little practice here, a little example to see if you guys um, can maybe pick out something that uh, we would see in our culture. So here's the example. I want you to read what's up on the slide. I'm going to give you a few seconds to read it. And I want you on your notes page, I gave you a little yes or no. I want you to answer this question. Is this passage from a Christian author or not? I'll give you a few seconds. See, it says, we each come to this world with the divine light of Christ inside us, with the ability to recognize truth about ourselves and about the Savior. Much like little children, Jesus is deeply empathetic, so much so that he was capable of taking on the anguish, regret, and pain of all our sins. Now, this sounds like pretty good text, right? Sounds, sounds it's got Christ, it's talking about Jesus, it's talking about you know, the divine light that's inside of us. And if you wrote down Christian, then you would most definitely be wrong. Um, in fact, this passage comes from the website um, mormon.org. All right, so maybe some of you were like, oh, I, I kind of recognize that philosophy. Um, and I just wanted to see what was out there in the ideas of what is Jesus' role? What is Jesus' view by different places? So I typed that in. This was one of the first things I popped up. And I want to take a moment to just analyze this excerpt that we got from this website and talk about the truth and the lies and what the Bible has to say about this. Because as believers, your role in life is to critically think about everything you're hearing and be able to speak truth into those situations. So the first thing we're going to look at is the first part of the passage. The first part of the passage says, we each come to this world with the divine light of Christ inside us, with the ability to recognize the truth about ourselves and about the Savior. Now, as I was reading through this multiple times, there's two things that I could have hit on, but the first thing and the only thing I'm going to hit on this passage is, is the first problem I have is that it has a wrong understanding of the post-fall original state of man. The post-fall original state of man. You see, in the Mormon religion, they believe that prior to birth, that we all lived in heaven with God. We had a spiritual being with God in heaven. And that God in everyone up there was being prepared for life on earth. So you had a 
divine relationship with God then, and then you were prepared, and at some point when you were ready, you were sent down into this world to live and to do work. And then they believe at the end of your life, you'll be able to go back up to some level of heaven and some closeness to God based on how well you live this life out. So the problem is, is that there is nothing in the Bible that talks about us having the divine light inside of us from the beginning, from our birth. In fact, if we look at Psalm 51.5, it says, David is talking here, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, some people might say, well, David here was talking about maybe a sin that his mother had or something like that, maybe some issues that his parents had. So, you know, they were sinful and then then he was born because of that. But the Bible doesn't teach us any of that. In fact, when Samuel went to to, uh, Jesse's house and anointed David, everything that we have in the word that tells us that that was God saying, I found favor in David and I'm going to anoint him. In fact, he was the youngest brother of all of his brothers. He was out in the fields working and Jesse was like, ah, I'm not even going to show him off. I'm going to show off his brothers first because they all look much better than him. And you see, at the very beginning, when we look at the predecessor to David, Saul, Saul was chosen in many aspects because of his physical appearance, his physical stature. He was taller than most everyone else. He had a good look. And God wanted to show through David that it's not the outside that God's looking at. It's the inside. Romans 3.10 says, so first, let me just hit back on that. So there's nothing in here that we see that uh, talks about his parents' issues or his parents' sin. This is David divinely, through the inspiration of the Spirit, saying, I am a sinner through and through, and it's only God, only by his grace that I am able to do anything. Romans 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2.3 says, by nature you are children of wrath. By nature. And the reason why we address these lies first is because we need to understand where we're at first before we can understand who God is. So when we understand that we, by nature, we are children of wrath, it puts us in a place where we need a savior. We need someone to take us out of that and put us somewhere different. The second problem I have with this passage is that it presents a problem with the deity of Christ. Look at what that passage says. It says, much like children, like little children, Jesus Christ is deeply empathetic, so much so that he is capable of taking on the anguish, regret, and pain of all our sins. So what I want to look at first is the definition of empathy. So when we look at the definition of empathy, it's an adjective, and it says, empathetic showing an ability to understand and share the feelings of our sins. Excuse me, of another. I think I, uh, I, uh, I have that up there for you on maybe the next slide. Is that coming up? Yeah, there we go. Sweet. So you can look at it. All right. So Jesus was empathetic toward humanity 
I want to point that out. He was empathetic toward humanity in many different ways, but not towards sin. See, here's the thing, is that Jesus didn't ever experience sin. Never experienced it. In order to be empathetic towards someone, you have to be able to experience it. You have to be able to feel it on the inside. You see, Jesus understood why people sinned. He understood the reasonings that they had in their mind because Jesus was able to know those things. He was able to read their hearts. He was able to read what they were thinking. That's why he was able to ask certain questions knowing what they were going to say. But the problem is, is that while Jesus knew the reasons why people sinned, he never empathized with them and said, you know, I feel you. I, I got you. I understand why you would do that because I can see how I would get there. No. Jesus didn't understand that. Jesus didn't do that. What Jesus did when he experienced sin in the people around him was we see multiple ways. I've got a few on the board there or on the screen there for you to look at. The first thing, John 8, we hear about the story of the woman caught in adultery. She was brought before Jesus. And he was in the temple teaching at the time and she was brought before Jesus and they tried to, tried to see how he would react to it. And what did Jesus say? She said, they said to her, said to him, this woman was caught in adultery. Moses' law says we should stone her and kill her. What do you say? Jesus' response was, he who is without sin casts the first stone. So one of the ways that Jesus addressed sin was by exposing sin. Exposed it for what it was. Second thing, John 2 and Matthew 21 and Greg talked about this a few weeks ago, talking about Jesus clearing out the temple. You see, Jesus did that two times in his life. And when Jesus cleared out the temple, we see him running in there and just flipping tables, and he has a cat of nine tails, and he's running and getting people out of there. And it says that it was written in the past that zeal for your house will consume me. So Jesus addressed sin in some, some aspects, sometimes with a righteous anger, with a righteous zeal. It wasn't one that was sinful, but it was one that was inspired because he recognized the holiness of God, and he did not want anything to, to change that or anything to dirty that, that uh, righteousness of God. The woman at the well in John 4 we see Jesus talking to this woman. Now, in this situation, we see that this is not a normal cultural thing for men to do, for Jewish men to do. But he goes and he talks to this woman. And when, she's, when he talks to her about this living water, he says, well, why don't you go and bring your husband? And we'll talk. And she said, well, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. Because you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. So what does Jesus do there? He talks about the truth. He, he knows the truth and he talks about the truth and he recognizes the truth. So he takes the lies that are out there and he counters them with truth. And finally, the last thing we see is Jesus focusing on the Father's will. When Jesus was arrested in, in the garden, we see him there and he's about to be taken. He's about to be uh, subdued. And what does Peter do? Peter grabs a sword, and he runs out a guy, and he chops off his ear, right? So Peter, in his own type of zealousness, ends up injuring this guy. And Jesus says, no. And I want to read this to you for a second. 
It says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. This was Malchus. And Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? So the way that Jesus countered, the, countered sin was focusing on the Father's will. Recognizing that, yes, there, we could have fought this. We could have done this maybe even in our own strength. But that would have been counter to the Father's will, and thus it would have been sin. <clears throat> the second issue I have with, um, with this um, understanding the deity of Christ is the idea of Jesus being capable of regret. It says that Jesus was capable of taking on the anguish, regret, and pain of sin. Now, I want to give you the definition of regret here. It says, a feeling of sadness, repentance, and disappointment over something that has happened or been done. Something that has happened or been done. Now, while Jesus might be sad about things that have happened, we see Jesus doing that, right? We see Lazarus dying and Jesus being sad about that. Do we ever see an example where Jesus is sad about sin in that he is sad in and of himself that that he has sinned or having to change from that view. No, we don't see that. What we do see, while he is disappointed that people do sin and choose sin, we see that he is disappointed not because of the fact that they sinned or the reasons why they sinned, but we see it because he, rec he sees God, he sees them, and he sees the gap in between the two because of the sin. That's where we see Jesus. So we don't see him ever regretting because the other thing about regret is that regret is something that you have to, um, you take on and it causes a, or it can cause a change in your life. And Jesus never had to change because what he did, and he said this himself, he said, I do what I see my father That's doing. So there's no need for Jesus ever to change what he was going to do because he was so in tune with his father that he did only what he saw his father doing. So three things about this passage I want you to take away from as far as the lies go. First off is lies are everywhere. They are everywhere. Everywhere you go, you will see lies. 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9 says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, is the devil, the devil, the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same type of experiences are being, or same types of suffering are being experienced by your brothers who are throughout the world. Everyone around the world is feeling suffering. Everybody that's a Christian around the world is feeling suffering in some way, shape, or form. And when you suffer, recognize that you are part of a brotherhood, a family who's experiencing suffering as well. So you can take heart in that, knowing that while we are in this world, we will experience suffering. So we need to recognize, first off, understand the truth. Lies are everywhere. Secondly, we must always be on guard. Always be on guard. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 talks about putting on the full armor of God that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. You know, as I was reading through this again, something that popped out to me was, what is the first piece of armor that God tells us to put on? The belt of truth. It's not a discount double check. It's a, the belt of truth, right? The belt of truth. And the reason why the belt of truth is the first thing that we have to put on is because unless we understand the truth about the situation, which is opposed to the lies, 
then we are not going to be able to stand. The rest of the armor is not going to help us unless we understand the truth. The third thing there is <laughs> don't battle Satan in street clothes, but battle him in the armor. Just like the last passage talked about in Ephesians 6, don't battle Satan in street clothes. Always put on the armor. As I was preparing for this sermon this week, I felt like I was being spiritually attacked on all sides, different ways, different avenues. Satan was trying to stop me from being focused. He was attacking me mentally. He was attacking me at work with different challenges there, trying to create division between my wife and I, my son and I, all sorts of avenues he's trying to attack me with. And what I, I, I reached out to my brothers and asked for prayer. And one thing that Eve sent to me was, was just this same reminder that you need to put on your full armor. Put on the full armor. And that was the prayer he kept praying through me and texting me throughout the week is, put on that armor. And unless we're wearing the armor, we won't be able to fight. That's right. The second thing um, we have today is we're talking about the truth. So we have the lies. Now we combat that with the truth, the truth. So the passage that we're looking at for that is verses 9 through 15, and really 9 through the rest of the passage. But here it says, for in him the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. You see, this was the lie that was being taught in Colossae during this time, that Jesus really isn't fully God. But he is, yes, he's kind of God, and he lives with God. He's a son of God, but not fully God. <clears throat> so what is the truth? Our passage reminds us here of four things regarding the truth. It says Christ, the first thing is Christ is fully God and fully man. You've seen this image. I showed it in a couple weeks ago when I, when I preached as well. But in God the fullness of the triune God exists. Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you take any one of those away, you are not able to encompass all of God. But then also inside all of God as well are those three. It's, it's three in one, all right? Three in essence, one, one in per. One in essence, three in person, as we say it. One in essence, three in person. So fully God and fully man is who Jesus is. The second thing is that Christ lives inside of all believers. In that passage, it says that God took up dwelling within us. And that's where we find our identity. When Christ dwells within us, we're able to find our identity in the Father. The third thing we see there is that sin has to be cut out and killed. It, the passage talks about circumcision. And the idea with circumcision is that there was a physical cutting off of flesh. Not that just the flesh itself was sinful, but it was a, a picture, an image of something removing painfully your flesh. Something that was connected to you and putting it aside. And then the same imagery comes in with baptism where you must die. And so that sin, that flesh, must be put aside, cut off, put aside, and killed so that the resurrection of Christ may raise us to new life. The last thing we have there is that Christ, as God's only begotten Son, has the authority and power because of who his daddy is. 
You know, I mentioned earlier that Christ said, I only do what my Father is doing. And when God came down, when Jesus was being baptized, he rested upon him and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And he also said later on in another time where we see God's spirit descending down on Jesus, it said, this is my son, listen to him. Because God vested his authority in Jesus to act in this world in power. And we as children, Jesus has given that to us. We as God's children have been given that same power, not to just do the same things that God does, but to do even greater things. The final thing we have to talk today about is the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, the first point I have to point out with the gospel is, and it comes from the, the last part of the passage, when we were kind of wrapping this all up, is understanding that Christ is fully God and fully man. Without that, there is no gospel. Without understanding that Jesus came down to this world as fully God and lived a, a perfect life as fully man, there is no gospel. That's right. There is no truth. Second thing is, God's plan for redeeming sin is through Christ. John 3, 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ's job, as he said himself, was to testify to the truth wasn't to come down to condemn the world. It wasn't like Jesus was coming down as a second flood to condemn the world and to punish the world. He came down to show the truth and testify to the truth so that God, through the Spirit, could awaken us to new life. We could understand the truth, and then the truth would set us free from that sin. The third thing, Christ's death and resurrection is the only means of justification. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, having been forgiven or having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. You see, <clears throat> when we sin, there are legal consequences in the spiritual world for those sins. Legal consequences. And when we sin from the very beginning, we are bound by those legal consequences. And the legal consequences also comes from Romans that we understand that the wages of sin is death. There is no other standard. Sin leads to death. But there's a great promise that also comes in that passage that talks about the free gift of God is eternal life because of his death and resurrection on the cross for us. And that's why Jesus came, was to provide that means of justification for us. So Jesus took the legal demands upon himself He's a fancy word that says that he was a propitiation for our sins. He was the replacement for our sins. It was the same idea in the Old Testament when they were talking about slaughtering animals as a payment for sin, a propitiation for sins. Blood had to be shed in order for sin to be paid for. So Christ did that for us. And that's the joy that we have in Christ. The final thing is that with Christ's death, that was not the end, but Christ conquered death and provided us a way 
to live with him in eternity in heaven forever. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God for salvation. And that gospel that we have just gone through, the fact that Jesus Christ came down into this earth, lived a perfect life, died and conquered death and rose again, that is the gospel. That is why we have joy. That is why we can recognize the truth from the lies because without Jesus resurrecting, being resurrected from the dead, we were, would not be able to be resurrected. And as a believer, anyone that's a believer here recognizes that they were brought from death to new life in him. Christ did that for us. And that's the joy that we have in that. So as we wrap up today, I ask you to bow your heads with me. And God, we just, we want to give this to you. We want to thank you for your word. And we just looked at a very small passage, a small bit of the truth that you have for us. And we recognize that there is a vast ocean of lies out there that we are navigating through. God, we know that without you, without your guidance, without your direction, our journey across this ocean of lies is hopeless. We will be tossed back and forth. We will lose our way. But you, God, are our compass. You help lead us straight and true back to you. So God, please, my prayer for us today is that you would help us this week and every subsequent week to help us to see the lies that are out there. Open our eyes. Remove the scales, the blinders that we have to the lies that are out there and help us to see the truth that counters those lies. We need you to do that, God. We can't do it on our own. There are too many lies out there for us to be able to, in our own power, see them and fight them in our lives and for our families. We need you, Father. The chief lie that's out there is that we don't even need you. We can do this life in ourselves. We can do it on our own. We don't need a God to save us. And God, I pray that there's no one out here that's, that's battling that lie or be believing that lie. But if there is, then your truth counters that. You said that we are dead in our trespasses and sin and that the wages of that sin is death. And without you, God, we have no hope. But because of Jesus Christ, we now are able to have hope. Because of your spirit awakening us to new life, we can understand that truth and we can believe it and we can act in accordance with it. So God, if there's anyone here today that is believing that lie, I ask you that you'd give them boldness. 
Boldness to step out in faith and recognize the lies that they've been believing and put them aside and step into the new life that you have delivered them to because without your help, they would not be able to even recognize this, this lie that they've been believing. And help them to step out in boldness and believe by faith that you are our Savior. You are the only way to eternal life with you. You are the only way that we have hope of battling these sins, of defeating Satan and his attacks, of putting on an armor to defend ourselves and go on the offensive based on the truth of your word. So if, you, if that's you today, if I was speaking to you, I'm not asking you to do anything crazy. All I'm asking you to do is to pray right now where you are to God because it's a, it's a personal thing for you. It's establishing a personal relationship and say something like, God, I recognize I believe in, I've been believing a lie and I hear your truth. Come into my life to take control. Remove from me the flesh and kill it so that I may walk in your truth and be raised to new life because of what Jesus has done for me. If you prayed that prayer today, just I ask you to please come up after the service and talk to myself, talk to Greg, talk to Eve, talk to someone about it. Let them know that you made that commitment to Christ and that you invited him into your life. It's a big step. And God, as we leave this place, I ask you that no one leaves here with that question in their mind about where they stand with you, about their, the, <clears throat> the status of their relationship with you, Father. Because you tell us that once we are yours, you will not let us go. So we have, by faith, the assurance that you are going to sustain us forever. And God, as we go into this week, give us boldness to confront the lies with your truth. Give us the boldness to be believers on the outside as well as on the inside. To believe fully that who you are is really real. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we thank you for your word that you delivered to us. It's in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen.